0: Hello, and welcome to the All Things Hadoop podcast. I'm your host, Joe Stein, founder and principal consultant of Big Data Open Source Security LLC. This is episode 13, a talk with Camille Fournier. And now, on to the show. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Camille Fournier. Camille is the vice president of technical architecture at Rent the Runway and an Apache Zookeeper committer and PMC member. Welcome, Camille.
1: Hi, thank you. Excited to be here.
0: So, Camille, uh, tell us a little bit about Rent the Runway, uh, the architecture of the business and uh, some of the challenges you face as well.
1: Sure. So, Rent the Runway is designer dress and accessory rentals, short-term rentals. So, if you're going and having an event uh, on over the weekend, you go on our site, you reserve a dress and an accessory to come deliver to your house on Thursday. You, you know, try it on, pick out your shoes, whatever. Wear it to your event on Friday or Saturday, stick it back in the mail, and it comes back to us on Monday or Tuesday. We clean it, repair it, whatever, and ship it out to the next person. So that's the, uh, the quick summary of the business, which may, may or may not sound challenging from an engineering perspective, but in fact, it's actually quite an interesting engineering challenge because not only do we have to worry about sort of your standard e-commerce challenges, right? displaying our content in a beautiful and compelling manner, displaying inventory that you are interested in, you know, using, stuff that you like. We also have to deal with sort of the challenges of what we call reverse logistics. So that's actually, you know, not only shipping stuff out of a warehouse, but taking stuff back into a warehouse, which is incredibly unique. Yes, Netflix, when they were mostly DVD rentals, sort of did that. But then you're talking about DVDs, which are, You know, it's media that if it breaks, you can easily get another copy. When you're talking about a designer dress, if it is broken or ruined, not only is it hard to get another copy, but, in fact, it may be impossible, and it's worth much, much, much more than a DVD. So we've got this really big challenge of reverse logistics, uh, you know, personalization, general e-commerce scaling, and all of that, which is really uh, what my tech team has to focus on all the time. It's an interesting uh Business, You know, I've chosen to do the architecture for the team basically as a SOA architecture, so service-oriented architecture. We actually use now Java back-end services of various sorts to serve all of the data, do all of our, you know, warehouse logic and whatnot, fronted by, for the most part, Ruby-thin clients, especially for the website. Um, And this has been really an evolution uh, of an architecture. When I started just a couple of years ago, we were pretty much 100% on Drupal, which is sort of a content management system, uh, and PHP for our entire website. Some of our operation software, which was still done in Java, but our entire website was in Drupal PHP, and it was a real, a real hairy beast, as these things can get. You know, lots and lots of logic, very tightly coupled with the view, very tightly coupled with the database layout that Drupal chooses to use. And so we've spent the last couple of years taking that system, turning it into something that is scalable, highly scalable, both on the back end and the front end, as well as something that scales to the number of developers we need to have writing code and, you know, releasing and making new features on the website. Um, so, you know, it's been a, it's a really interesting company. It's a great engineering team. Um, it's been a very exciting couple of years for me working there.
0: Awesome. Uh, very cool. So how did you first get into Zookeeper?
1: So I first got into Zookeeper at uh, Goldman Sachs. So I worked at Goldman Sachs before I worked at rent a and I was working on a core infrastructure team for Goldman Sachs. And that team was sort of starting to – it was called Application uh, Infrastructure and Messaging. Basically what that meant was they sort of owned a lot of the core code – related to um, different businesses talking to each other. So, you know, originally that was really uh, messaging systems, messaging queues, you know, Cibco and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and as I was joining the group, it had actually grown into ownership of this SOA platform. So again, service-oriented architecture platform that a team had written for their business that we had decided would be really useful across the company. So they had adopted this platform, but one of the big challenges with the platform was that you had to really hard code into the client, you know, into the client configuration, um, the addresses of the services that they would be talking to. Um, and so this presented problems because not every client would update at the same time as the services, and so they sort of needed to know which version of the services they were talking to. And essentially, it was just this very hairy problem of discovery, where we really needed to solve the problem of having clients being able to find the services that they needed to use, the right services, and have those services sort of be able to be upgraded and running multiple versions for different clients without having to actually change client configuration. It's one of the problems that team was trying to solve as part of that support for that system And we had decided pretty much to use Zookeeper for this because done a little research and, you know, read into the product and thought, you know, this seems like a pretty decent project. It comes out of Yahoo, it seems like it's, you know, solid. And so I became the architect for, you know, our service discovery system. And that ended up being a very interesting project because First of all, I am a very, uh, I'm a very anal person, you might say. I'm a very thorough person, if you want to say it nicer. And for me to really understand and trust that Zookeeper was going to work at the level of sort of availability that my company needed at the time, I basically had to dig into the code to a really, really deep level because I don't trust documentation. I don't, you know, I'm just one of those people that I have to read the code. To understand it. And so I sort of got into the code base and started really reading and understanding not only the way that you use Zookeeper, which that itself takes quite a bit of time to sort of really grok, um, but also the way that the system is actually built. Um, And I started sort of discovering some bugs and some features that we use that nobody really else was using around authentication of ACLs and things like that. And, uh, you know, Submitted so a few bug fixes there, but just, um, you know, I, I just became more and more a member of the community because I had had to learn the system so well to trust and sell the system as a core component of the infrastructure I was building at Goldman Sachs. Um, so that's, you know, sort of how I got into a project.
0: Uh, so, what are some of the challenges that you faced running Zookeeper, and you've heard that other fa- other folks have faced when looking at architecting uh, a Zookeeper implementation and and handling a deployment?
1: A lot of companies use Zookeeper either you know implicitly because it's part of their Hadoop cluster or whatever, or explicitly to do coordination themselves. Um, and so, you see both a lot of people using it and a lot of people complaining about it. And some of the things that they complain about are. Zookeeper is difficult to reason about. It's a system that you can use to do a lot of very complex things. So you can use you can use Zookeeper to do distributed locking, and feel be sure that it's correctly doing distributed locking if you implement distributed locking correctly reasoning about how to implement distributed locking correctly and all the ways that it can fail and all the ways those failures will bubble up through your zookeeper to your client and, you know, (laughs) the states in which your client can be in from a zookeeper perspective is actually quite non-trivial. So even when you're not thinking about the zookeeper deployment itself, you're just thinking about working with zookeeper and implementing these distributed coordination actions, Um, there's a lot of complexity that you have to handle there, right? You have to sort of think about what is the right behavior for an individual client when it cannot talk to the zookeeper? Is the right behavior to simply do nothing? Is the right behavior to continue on like you already have the lock, you know, to sort of view your latest state from zookeeper as a cache. What, you know, what should you do, right? And the answer is it kind of depends on your system and your risk tolerances, right? If you're using Zookeeper to store certain centralized, you know, um, configuration information, right? Maybe you just say, you know what, the last state that I got from Zookeeper is good enough to try to use that as a cache. And I'm just going to try to go along with that information, right? So if you're talking about service discovery, which is what I use Zookeeper for, it's perfectly safe to say, (laughs) I looked up server addresses for these services that I need. I'm just going to assume that those are still valid and try to use them. And, you know, if they're not valid, then maybe I won't be able to connect or some of my operations will fail. But that's better than just not moving forward at all. On the other hand, if you're using Zookeeper to implement a distributed lock and you are the process that holds the lock and then you lose your connectivity to the Zookeeper cluster, you really cannot assume that nobody else has gotten that lock because you don't know why you lost that connectivity, whether it's an error in the zookeeper, an error in your machine, a network partition somewhere. And so you really cannot do anything correct but stop operating. So even at the sort of base level of using the zookeeper to implement, you know, various pieces of distributed coordination, distributed locking, the, a lot of people just hit up on challenges because it's very difficult to reason through, and it just it is. I'm not. It's not clear to me that there's any way to get around the fact that this is simply a difficult problem to reason about, and you have to, you know, sit down with a pad of paper and a pen or a whiteboard, and really just go over all the edge cases and all the failures and decide what you have tolerances for and what you don't. Um, people have built libraries on top of Zookeeper to make this easier, so the net. Netflix Curator Library is one, and that is certainly helpful and probably good enough for most people writing zookeeper code um, it, it's a, It's a Java library, there are other sort of high level abstractions out there that you can use for other languages. The biggest challenge here though is that you you, you can sort of you know use those libraries and just take them as their, their defaults as the behavior so maybe the default is. If you can't get your lock, you just stop. And that's fine. But you should be very strongly aware of the defaults that you're working with in that case. Um, Because otherwise, you know, it's very likely that someday something's going to break. And you're not going to understand why it broke. And you're going to be, you know, debugging in production. and, And, you know, you will be sad. But you know what? That happens with every system. So I think that's one of the... One of the big things that people have trouble with when it comes to ZooKeeper um, is just a flat, like it's difficult to reason about distributed coordination, and we don't have great abstractions at ZooKeeper, you know, in the ZooKeeper libraries themselves. And so other people have come up with some of those abstractions, which helps, but it's not perfect.
0: Yeah, awesome. What are some tips that you have for folks uh, looking to deploy and uh, maintain and manage a uh, ZooKeeper cluster in production?
1: Sure. So, I mean, there are a lot of best practices that you can find online if you look. I think Zookeeper is one of those systems where it's a little bit of a pain the first time you go to run it because it doesn't have like a friendly, happy UI to get you started, to get you configured. You know, you're, you're, you're editing a text file somewhere and you're putting configuration information into it. Um, but that being said, some of the best practices for running it are, you know, when you're running in production, you need to be running a cluster. You need to be running an odd-numbered cluster of servers, which means you need to be um, running probably three servers, maybe five servers. If you're running it in a virtual environment, in a cloud environment, please make sure you're not running two nodes or even all three nodes on the same physical machine. That would be bad. <laughs> the goal is to have something that w- that is robust to machine failure. And uh, the reason that you have to run an odd number of machines is that ZooKeeper's failure tolerances are such that you can lose a minority of nodes and still be uh, be a working cluster. So if you have three machines, you can lose one machine and still be a working cluster. If you have five, you can lose two and still be a working cluster. You have to have a majority, though, to continue to operate. Zookeeper works by keeping all of its state in memory. So the structure of Zookeeper under the covers is sort of this file like, tree like structure of nodes where you, you know, you have a path to the node, it looks like a file system a little bit. And the node may have children and it may also contain some amount of data, um, some small amount of data. You do not want to use Zookeeper as a place to cache large items, right? It is not meant to do that. Why is it not meant to do that? Because all of that data, all of those nodes are stored in memory. If you ever swap to disk, keeper will not behave well. So you never want it to be swapping to disk in any way, either your Java process swapping to disk or what have you. Right? You just you do not want to do that. So make sure the memory that your JVM has allocated to it is less than the total memory of the you know machine that it's running on. Um, so that's sort of one important, important thing to note. Uh, you know, for Zookeeper to perform best, you have, you write both a transaction log and snapshot, and you want separate directories or separate disks, I should say, for those two things. That's definitely important if you're doing a lot, a lot of writes to Zookeeper. I've found that not every use case is very, very write heavy. And so you can get away with having them on the same disk if you happen to be you know, and using Zookeeper for less write-heavy loads. But for best practices, you want to separate the disks that those are written on. And one interesting and tricky thing about ZooKeeper, from my personal perspective, is if you are trying to use ZooKeeper to coordinate things that you don't want it to crash if you lose a data center or a region, you have to be very careful about how you actually Uh, locate your zookeepers. So I actually have a blog post on this topic that you can can read on my blog, but when I was working with zookeeper, I had a requirement that my zookeeper needed to be alive if I lost a data center. And the deployment that I was doing, well, we had three regions. We had an Asia region, which was really in um, Tokyo. We had a, a Europe region in London, and we had a New York region, America's region in New York, and each region had two data centers. And that's not great because if I want to deploy a New York-based zookeeper cluster and have it live through the loss of a single data center, I kind of can't do that with two data centers, right? Because you cannot guarantee that the data center you lose is the one that's going to only have a minority of nodes, right? So if you have three in one data center and two in the other, you lose a data center with three nodes in it, your Zookeeper is done until you do something. Um, So, you know, if you're deploying Zookeeper in AWS and you want to make sure that if you lose in the AWS region, Zookeeper is still alive. You know, that's fine. You can simply display it across three different, you know, availability zones or what have you. But if you're in a situation where you only have two data centers in the region, you have to either you have to be creative. You can install a tiebreaker node in a, the cloud somewhere in Amazon or you know something like that, what I did was actually install this tiebreaker node in a different region so I would have you know it, for my New York cluster I'd have two uh, zookeeper nodes in each data center in New York and then one tiebreaker node that lived in London and I had to do some work to make sure that that London node never became the leader of the zookeeper qualm because the leader gets all the traffic going through it. Um and if you did that and you were really basing this out of New York and it was aimed at New York clients, you don't want your data having to go through London before it's acknowledged as good or not, right? You don't want your you don't want your voting because New Because is fundamentally a Paxos this Paxos esque algorithm under the covers, which means there's a lot of voting involved in accepting rights and, you know, changing state. And that means that You know, all votes would have to go through and be collected by the leader. You don't want those votes having to go to London to be collected and then to create a result. So You want to make sure the leader is never in that remote node, in that remote location. Um, So from a sort of global distribution perspective, Zookeeper can be a little bit tricky to architect. Not, you know, not ultimately impossible, but just a little bit tricky to think about. Um, Another thing that people have struggled with and that we're finally going to be really addressing in ZooKeeper in the 3.5 release is configuration or reconfiguration. For a long time, the only way to reconfigure ZooKeeper was to restart the server. There was absolutely no way to update the configuration of the ZooKeeper cluster without restarting it. (laughs) And that means downtime. Obviously, that's less than ideal if you're running ZooKeeper because it's a highly available system and you never ever want it to be down, um, you know, that can cause cause you problems having to take it down to upgrade it. So in 3.5, one of our committers, Alex Schreyer, has finally done all the work to put reconfiguration, dynamic reconfiguration, into our Zookeeper cluster, which is awesome and very exciting. Um, And that will hopefully ease people's ability to, you know, move Zookeeper nodes from one machine to another, you know, add notes to a cluster, remove quote notes from a cluster, and just generally make the process of operating Zookeeper without having downtime much easier on people.
0: Awesome. So with uh, all the different open source experience that you've had uh, in the Zookeeper community and, uh, in, and with other projects, uh, how have you apl- uh, applied that internally when building, uh, you know, products as a service?
1: So I'm a huge proponent of open source. I think it's, you know, I think... Open source is the best thing to come out of computing in the last 40 years, whatever. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think as a working engineer, open source has made my life infinitely better. Um, and so I'm just a big proponent of being involved in open source of using open source software and, you know, of encouraging my team to think about their software as open source. Now, you know, often, it doesn't make sense to actually open source your company's internal software. Either it, you know, has a lot of proprietary value to you as a company, or it just just doesn't make any sense, right? I, I'm not going to open source the uh, software at Rent the Runway that deals with my product catalog because it's very very specific to Rent the Runway, and it wouldn't really make any sense for anyone else to use it. That being said, it makes a great deal of sense for everyone on my tech team to be able to use it, to be able to read the source code and to be able to participate in that code base, even if they're not necessarily on the team that owns that source. And so I've really tried very hard to, both at this company and at Goldman Sachs, to encourage the use of what I call internal open source software and the development of internal open source software, which is, you know, software that many people in the company use. Should be developed in a way that anyone in the company, any any engineer that has a problem with it or that needs a new feature, should be able to contribute that feature back to the project without sort of going through a, oh, I need you to build this for me. Here's the ticket. You know, I found this bug. You guys should really fix this. Instead, of say, you know what, like the source is open. We're running it as an open source project where, yes, we have gatekeepers on the team that owns it, but that doesn't mean. That they are the only people that can work on the software. Everyone who works on that software, and so the team that owns a particular piece of shared software it does not become a bottleneck. Um, and I'm just a big component of encouraging developers to step out of their comfort zone, to step out of the code bases that they're used to, and you know, at least have some exposure across the development organization. Uh, I think it makes them better engineers. I think it makes the code better. I think that you know, it's just a really great thing for you know an engineering team as
0: a whole yeah it kind of takes like that next step after the whole devops culture so that developers could understand operations people and operations people can understand developers now everyone could understand kind of you know the different code bases that they work in and then the you know the the trials and tribulations that everyone's going through and kind of um you know build a culture around that and it's really it's a really good idea it's great
1: yeah yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's actually funny that you should mention that because I've been thinking a lot about DevOps and, you know, it's funny to me that I, I guess I sort of feel a little bit like I've been doing DevOps since before DevOps was even a term um, because weirdly enough, my first team at Goldman, we didn't uh, we didn't rack our own machines, and we didn't do the lowest levels of But when it comes to like operating the software, when it comes to deploying the software to Dealing with issues in production, to supporting it, all of that—it was all done by the developers that wrote the code. And so, to me, I've always been a really huge proponent of <laughs> developers should understand all aspects of software, from deploying it, operating it, using it, QAing it. I am—I actually sort of tend to believe that QA should really be something that every developer is responsible for, and you know not quite so much just a special QA team, you know, QA ops. I don't know. What is that? What is dev QA? What is QA ops? Like what is, how does that whole picture fit together? But, you know, in my mind, a really, a really great software developer. I mean, this is in some ways very much like open source, right? In open source, you maybe you're not ops because you're not actually running the software for another person, but you're definitely QA if you're a member of that open source community because you're constantly you know, answering questions about it, finding bugs in it yourself. You know, trying to find bugs in it before you de- before you deliver libraries, right? So, you know, this 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 whole thing. You know, just I my belief is that like developers really only get better by owning more parts of their software, and that that includes all of these things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I even you know, and and kind of what I've also yeah. done in the past is even extend that into you know on the product side too, and you know, kind of force developers to do like user acceptance testing because if they build some user interface and don't actually try it and use it and actually be a user of their own system, um, like they're never going to understand why certain things are the way they are or be able to call out issues. I mean, if it doesn't make sense, like you're a user. If it doesn't make sense, eventually it's not going to make sense to somebody else also. So let's find that out now and understand why we want to change it or not change it. Um, you know, at an earlier time, and folks can't just live in their unit tests. Like they got to open the application and, you know, be a user, user ops.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I fight that battle with my team sometimes. Yeah, and it, it's <laughs> But uh, I, I, I completely agree.
0: Totally. Um, so, what's what's uh, what's your advice for folks looking to get into open source?
1: Yeah. So I think it's interesting because I feel like. There's a very strong message out there right now. The whole GitHub is your resume message. The, you know, that you have to be in open source. You have to be sharing your code with the world or else you're not a, you're not a real developer or whatever. And I think if you can get into open source, if you have the time, you absolutely should. Um, If you want to get into open source, my personal advice is to find something that you use and find a bug with it. And fix it. Right, find something that drives you crazy about a piece of software that you use that's open source, and fix that thing that drives you crazy. Um, hopefully, it's something easy. Right, I've <laughs> my you know open source work beyond Zookeeper is fairly limited because I'm quite busy. But you know, one of the recent projects that I did a little something for was uh, an earlier version of the Play framework. So not the new two dot framework, but in the one dot two version of Play, they had an issue where in Eclipse, when you ran tests, you could not run a single test. You could only run a whole class worth of tests. And it drove me crazy. And so I was kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to figure out why this is wrong and I'm going to fix it. And I did. And, you know, in my mind, that is the best way to get into open source if writing open source software is not your job. Um, I think another great way to get into open source, and frankly, the way that most people that are in the open source community are there is because they are paid by their employers to do it. And I don't think we should understate that, right? Like most of the people working on these big open source projects, they are paid, you know, Red Hat, right, has a huge number of developers working on various aspects of Linux, and they're paid by Red Hat to do that because it makes sense for Red Hat to pay people to keep this and keep these projects going. So, You know, the idea that open source is all just volunteer armies of people contributing in their spare time is really not true. It's, you know, look at me, right? I'm, I was involved in the Zookeeper project initially because I was being paid by my employer to be involved in that project, essentially. And, you know, it made sense for my employer for me to get really deep into that source code and actually become a member of that community because we were using it, and the better I could make it from a community perspective, the better the product that we would end up with would be. Um, now I'm still involved in that project, despite currently not using it in my company. Um, and it's, it's you know it's a labor of love, and it's very hard. Actually, it's very hard to find time to do open source when it's not part of your job. So, you know, if at all possible, my advice for people that want to be doing open source is find something that you are already using, that you're already doing something with, that has an aspect that you want to fix and fix it, Um, or find something that you're working on at your company that you think is not so, you know, proprietary, special sauce, but something that other people would find useful, and convince your boss, or, you know, if you are your own boss, just open source it, right? Make that available to the world. You know, GitHub has made this very, very easy for people to do, and that itself is also incredibly valuable. Um, But also, I would say, don't beat yourself up if you don't right now (laughs) have the time or inclination or idea of like what, how to even get started. Because I think there are people out there that beat themselves up because they're not doing a lot of open source work or any at all, because they don't, you know, they just don't, don't see it. They don't have time. They're really busy at their job. They've got a life outside of their job. They've got kids or whatever, you know? And I, I don't think that, you know, GitHub is, everyone's new resume, right? I'm perfectly happy to hire people who don't have any, you know, open source work, right? Because I don't expect that everyone has the time or inclination necessarily to do that. It's great if you can and if you want to. It's a very, very satisfying and rewarding experience, but I also don't think it should be a requirement for every single software developer to to have to do that.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, well, thank you for your time today, Camille. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.